0: I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 is where we're going to be this morning for our time of study. Uh, we are looking at part two of what we began last week. It's a three-part series on why Christ came. Last week we saw part one, the coming of Christ to save. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Today, we are looking at part two on the coming of Christ. Why did Christ come? Part two is he came to judge. Next week, we will look at Jeremiah chapter 23 and look at part three, the coming of Christ to reign. We will look at that next week. I am fascinated by the International Space Station. Anybody can relate to me on that? Such a fascinating, fascinating thing. Since 1998, more than 250 people have been aboard the International Space Station orbiting planet Earth. I'm intrigued by this. Currently, there is a crew of seven members that are aboard the International Space Station, and they live, and they work, and they research, and they study, and they maintain this International Space Station while they orbit the Earth at an altitude of 250 miles. That's pretty high. They travel five miles per second, and they orbit planet Earth every 90 minutes. That means they're traveling at a speed of 17,000 miles per hour. That's cool. I would love to be aboard that International Space Station. And they have a crew that usually has a mission for about six months long, although the longest of a man and woman aboard the International Space Station has been almost a year, 350 days. I would venture to guess that you and I have not met the seven members that are currently on board that International Space Station. But no doubt, when they were leaving and they were boarding this craft, no doubt they would say to their families, I'm going to go, but I will come back again. Hopefully, I will come back again. Uh, We have never met them. I don't know them. I've never seen them with my own eyes. But you and I would not approach their family, and you and I would not say to them, ha, that's a lie. They don't exist. They're not going to return. We would never say that to their family. Why? Because these seven individuals are real. Because these seven individuals have really gone, and yet they are really going to return, hopefully. It is the same with Jesus. You and I may not have seen him with our own visible eyes, but yet he is real. He is just as real as these crew members aboard the International Space Station. Jesus is gone right now. He's in heaven, but he said he will return again he will return again. Along those lines, I want you to follow with me as I read about this return from Jesus' own lips. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 29. Here is the word of the Lord. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light And the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory." And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Hear this very carefully. Just like Jesus came one time, so he will surely come back a second time. And when we read in the Bible about the second coming of the Lord Jesus, I want to clarify for you, by way of introduction, a little bit of detail about the second coming of Christ. Because the Bible tells us that there are two phases or two parts to the second coming. First, let me tell you about how Jesus says he will come for his people, he will come for his people. It is called in the Bible the catching up of the believers, the snatching away of believers, or in the early uh, Latin translation, it would be called the rapture of the believers in First Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 and John 14 describes this. The first phase of the future second coming is the quick snatching away. It is an instantaneous coming. It is a quick snatching. It is a hopeful deliverance, and it is a very specific taking of all true believers who are alive. It will instantly transform every Christian to the likeness of Jesus. We will be glorified, and we will be caught up to meet Jesus in the clouds. This is the catching up. It is the seizing. It is the snatching that could happen at any moment on God's prophetic timetable, any moment it could happen, and it will happen before the future seven-year tribulation event begins. Kind of like when God rescued Noah Before God flooded the whole world, or just like God brought righteous Lot out of Sodom before he brought the judgment of fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, so God promises similarly to rescue all true believers. He will rescue the church out before the day of the Lord, the tribulation begins. But that's the first phase. But there is a second phase of the second coming that will happen in the future. And that second phase is when Jesus comes with his people. The first phase is he comes for his people when we meet him in the clouds. The second phase is that he comes with his saints all the way down from heaven to earth. That is going to be our focus today. We are going to look at the second phase of this glorious second coming when Jesus will descend with great power, with great glory. And every person all over the world alive at that time will, with their own eyes, see him coming on the clouds of heaven. We're going to look at that this morning. I want to share with you, though, very briefly, a couple of key passages that deal with the second coming of our Savior in great power and glory. If you you want to study this more, if you want to read this this upcoming week as as the year is coming to an end and we're launching into 2024, here would be some great scriptures to read on the second coming of Christ. Zechariah chapter 14 tells us the location where he will return back on the Mount of Olives. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 tells us the victory that will happen when he comes back in blazing glory and fire. Acts chapter 1 verse 11 tells us the manner of his coming, that he will come vis- visibly and bodily on the clouds all the way down to earth, kind of like when he left at the first time when he ascended. We could read Jude verses 14 and 15, which tell us the purpose of the second coming. Why is he going to come back again? We will look at that more in a little bit. We could read Revelation chapter 19, which will describe the severity and the righteousness and the judgment that will come when the Savior returns to earth. But another passage is Matthew chapter 24. And that's what we want to look at today, because there are details in Matthew 24 on the coming of Jesus with power and glory that we want to fixate upon today. If last week we looked at the first coming of Christ, If last week we set our mind upon the coming of Jesus, born of a virgin, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of this young Jewish girl, Mary, and he is of the messianic lineage from David, and he has every right to the throne, and he is in fact the Savior and the Lord and the King, today we want to look at the second coming of Jesus. Now, if you look in your Bible, just scan Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. Look at how long those chapters are. You see, this is the longest answer that Jesus ever gave to a single question recorded for us in the Bible. Essentially, Matthew 24 begins with some disciples that are with Jesus. And they're on the Mount of Olives. It's the week that Jesus will die. And they say to Jesus a question. I'm reading Matthew 24, verse 3. They say, Jesus, tell us, when are these things going to happen? When is the the temple going to be destroyed? And then they want to know what will be the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age. Jesus, I have a question for you. Tell me about future prophetic events. Jesus answers their question. In what Matthew gives us is a two-chapter response to that question. It is the fifth discourse that Matthew gives us in his long gospel. It is a sermon that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives to the disciples, describing for them what the signs are that will alert them to the end of the age and to his coming. Much of the chapter in Matthew 24 deals with the subject of the tribulation, or in the biblical language, it's often called the day of the Lord or the day of Jacob's trouble. It parallels Revelation chapter 6 all the way to 19. And primarily it's dealing with the first three and a half years of war and famine and, and anger and the Antichrist and a false peace treaty and, and all these things that we see the stage being set in our current day. But then according to verse 15 of Matthew 24, Jesus then leads to the middle of that seven-year period. It's called the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist or the man of sin, he will commit an abomination of desolation. Daniel talked about it. Matthew talks about it. And then he will wreak havoc all across the world for three and a half years. He will wreak havoc all across the world for a time, times and half a time. Revelation tells us and Daniel tells us with great clarity, that's three and a half years. Half of the tribulation will be a time of unprecedented trouble such as the world has never, ever known before. But then in verse 29, that's where our text is today. Look at it in your Bible when Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days. So we're not just dealing with any hardship and distress and infirmity and suffering in our lives. There's a very specific time period of tribulation that Jesus in the context is referring to. After that tribulation period, after the seven years, something will happen. It is the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. I want to let you know that just as the first coming of Jesus was historical, supernatural, and real, so will the second coming be, guess what, supernatural, historical, and real. But we have to ask the question, what's the purpose of the second coming? I mean, what, why is Jesus going to return again. We know that he came the first time to save. He said that in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The angel told Mary in Matthew chapter one, that you will call his name Jesus. I think the angel said it to Joseph. Actually, you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Well, Now we come to the second coming. What's the purpose of this? I want to give you some scriptures. I'm going to sort of give you my proof conclusion up front, and then we're going to support it as we go through the sermon today. The purpose of the judgment is found in many parts of God's word. Let me read Joel 3 verse 2. Speaking of this future time of judgment, I will gather the nations and I will enter into judgment with them. There in the valley of Jehoshaphat, that's in Jerusalem. A little bit later on in Joel 3 verse 12, God says there I will sit to judge the nations. According to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 5, the apostle Peter says that Christ is ready to judge the living and the dead. According to Jeremiah 25... Verse 31, we read, God will enter into judgment with all flesh. I think you see a word that's coming out in each of these. It's the word judge. It's the word judgment. What is the purpose of this future coming? It is to judge. In one of the great prophetic passages, Daniel chapter 7, speaking of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, we read in Daniel 7 verse 22, the ancients of days came and judgment was passed, and the time came when the saints took possession of the kingdom. According to Psalm 96 verse 13, the Lord is coming and he comes to judge the world in righteousness. Righteousness. And Paul was preaching on Mars Hill in his missionary journey. Acts 17, verse 31, God is commanding all people to repent because he has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. According to Jude, verses 14 and 15, we read that the Lord will come with many thousands of his holy ones, that's angels and believers, and he will come all the way back to earth. Why? To execute judgment upon all. Revelation 19, verses 11 and 12, says that I saw the heavens opened and one sitting on a white horse, his name is faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and Makes war. Okay, so here are 10 scriptures that would all indicate that when the Lord comes again, he will come to judge. He will come to judge. Our conclusion is this that the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ will return a second time to judge. But if we're going to look at this and understand this coming of judgment, I want to help you understand it in three ways as we look at Matthew chapter 24 and a number of other scriptures this morning. If you're taking notes, I want to help us understand this coming again to judge in three ways. Number one, I want you to see the preparation, the preparation. Number two, I want you to see the description of the coming. And then third, the applications, We're going to see the preparation for the coming. I want to show you the description of the coming. And then we will conclude with some applications as well for the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, as we look at Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29, let's begin with the first heading that we need to understand about the coming of Christ. Let's look at the preparation, the preparation for the coming to judge. And let's just pause for a moment and consider how God is so careful and deliberate to set the stage and prepare for the first coming of Jesus. I mean, ponder with me what the Bible teaches That in the days of the fourth Roman Empire, Messiah would come. And he did. God prepared the stage. In those days when Herod the Great was the king in Judea. In the days when God had sent forth a forerunner by the name of John, who was the baptizer of many crowds. In the days when there was a virgin conception in a young Jewish girl named Mary. When there was the preparing of Joseph, this young Jewish man, to raise and teach and instruct Jesus, when he was born, the first century messianic expectation that was everywhere around Israel looking for the Messiah to appear, God set the table perfectly. He prepared the stage perfectly for the arrival of the first coming of Christ. So it will be that God will prepare and set the table For the second coming of Christ. And I want you to see it in verse 29. Look at it in our text. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Don't miss the important chronological marker. Often in biblical prophecy, there's not as much precision chronologically as there is right here. We we wish that God always just gave us a clear timetable of what he was going to do. But right here he does. Immediately after after the tribulation of those days. Well, what is the tribulation of those days? It is the very specific age of the seven-year tribulation. It is the 70th week of Daniel. It is the day of the Lord. It is the day of Jacob's trouble. It is a seven-year period when God makes it very clear that he will judge an unbelieving world because of its unbelief. And at the same time, God will bring an unprecedented revival. It will be so great unlike the world has ever seen before. Not only will the judgment be bad, but the revival will be great. 144,000 Jewish people and so great are the multitudes that no one could even count them from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. There will be a preparing for the Jewish people for the coming kingdom and yet let us be clear that we are not in the tribulation now. We're not in it the believers are told by Jesus a promise to His church in Revelation three ten that He will save us out from that hour of trial that is to come upon the entire inhabited world. So, after the tribulation of those days, well, what will happen? What is part of the preparation? Look at verse 29. Look look at what God says he will do. I mean, he's putting his power on display. In those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I mean, this is awesome in the literal sense of the word. If you look back just a few verses to Matthew twenty four twenty seven, look at how Jesus describes his own coming. Verse 27, just as the lightning comes from the east and it flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. It will be an obvious coming. It will be a divine coming. And the preparation for that coming includes cosmic, unmistakable signs. Now, you and I could, could, could try to get confused all day long figuring out what does it mean that the sun is going to be dark and the moon is not going to give its light and the stars are going to fall from heaven. And there's plenty of interpretations out there to figure all that out. I'm not sure if the point is for us to figure out all of those details. As much as the point is, Jesus is simply using language back from the book of Isaiah to say, this is what God says he will do in the future tribulation to prepare for his coming. For example, in Isaiah chapter 13, In Isaiah 13, verse 10, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. Then God says, I will punish the whole world for its evil, and I will punish the wicked for their iniquity. Well, that hasn't happened. But yet God is preparing for the coming of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. These are cosmic events that will occur just before Christ's second coming. Now, back to Matthew 24, verse 29. Jesus says, the sun will be dark, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky. You know, I think we can all acknowledge this will have a worldwide effect. I mean, every person in every nation in all of the world, will take notice of this. And people will be fearful. The whole world's attention will be immediately drawn heavenward. There will be dread. There will be worldwide panic. There will be darkness. There will be celestial disturbances and all of the effects of that when God brings this about in preparation for the coming of the Son of God. And the end of verse 29, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. These signs are so cosmic. They are so big, they are so global, they are so heavenly, and they are so spectacular, they are so awesome, that no one on the earth can possibly miss it. No one. One commentator on this, Sam Storms, was describing the second coming in this way. Jesus will come bathed in radiant splendor. He will come enveloped with an atmosphere of indescribable brilliance. He will be surrounded by the ear-piercing praise of all of the angels and the saints. And majestic light will shine from his eyes, and irresistible power will pour from his hands, and no one can deny his beauty, and no one will escape the transforming energy when the Son of Man comes. That hasn't happened yet, but it will. This is the preparation for the coming of Christ to judge. But if you're taking notes, jot down with me the second word. If that's the preparation for the coming, now I want you to see the description. So what's it like Well, what's it going to be like when Jesus comes back? I mean, we looked last week at the description of the birth and the conception and the childhood of Jesus. We saw the description then of the first coming. But what is the description of the second coming going to be like? And I suppose it would be appropriate to illustrate that in a simple way. We all get, especially in our day, we get important comings, don't we? We understand it. For example, when a, when a bride is coming down that aisle at a wedding, we understand the importance and the beauty and the significance of that entrance event. When when there is a sports team who is making their entrance for that important championship game, we get it. We understand the hype and all the significance that can come with the entrance of a team at such an occasion. Or or the entrance of a band at a concert or a play or a theater. We, we understand important entrances. But nothing compares to the coming and the entrance. Of Jesus. Look with me in your Bible at Matthew 24. Look at verse 30. And then, don't miss that little word then. It's a very important Greek word that tells us after the tribulation events, then when all of that is complete, and all these celestial disturbances are happening. Okay, then, verse 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. This is, this is the answer to the disciples' question way back in verse 3. What's the sign of your coming? And what's the sign of the end of the age? Jesus, before you die and before you're gone, can you just give us a little bit of a clue as to the end of the age? We want to know when you're coming back. So Jesus answers, verse 30, that he himself is the sign. In fact, in verse 30, he says, the son of man will appear. The Greek word means he will shine brilliantly. Maybe in a modern rendition, we might think you'll turn on the light and you'll be blinded by such majestic light. He will appear. He will shine, and all of the tribes—no doubt, including the Jewish people, their twelve tribes—but all of the nations as well. They will mourn. Why? Why the word "mourn"? Why will people mourn when Jesus returns? Well, the the word in the Greek signifies. As Sorrow and loss and shame and grief. Because it will be truth learned too late. It'll be too late. It'll be the time for judgment, but it'll be too late for them to cry out for mercy. When Jesus returns again, it will be with messianic splendor and kingly glory and unmistakable brilliance and global astonishment. get this, no one will be texting or tweeting or posting or updating because the text says they will see him. That's a miracle. All will see when the Son of Man comes. According to verse 30, Jesus describes himself by his favorite title the son of man that's from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 and then it says that he will come on the clouds of the sky why why clouds why is that important because it's language from Exodus chapter 19 when God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai and the fullness of God was revealed guess what the fullness of God will be revealed again in a far greater way than what Moses saw at Sinai. In the future second coming, when Jesus, the Son of Man, comes on the clouds, yes, he will descend from the heavens, but it is a biblical significance that all of the fullness of God is present personally in a full unveiling of god in the second coming so my kids get a laugh when i tell them that i only have 3 points in my sermon because they're quick to say ha but how many subpoints do you have <laughs> so i am happy to tell you that in this second point now i have 10 subpoints on the descriptions of the second coming of Christ. I promise it'll be quick. Number one, the first description, he comes personally. He comes personally. According to Acts chapter one, verse 11, when the disciples were on the Mount of Olives and Jesus ascended to heaven, they were struck. They were spellbound looking at Jesus going into the heaven. And the angel said, why are you amazed? I think that's a funny question. I'd be amazed, too, if that just happened. But the angel said he's going to descend in the same way that you saw him go up. Jesus will personally, the same Jesus who was born of the Virgin, who was raised in Nazareth, who had his public ministry, who was rejected by men, who was hoisted up on a cross, who was risen from the dead, the same Jesus will personally return. Second, the second description of Jesus' return is he will come, second, visibly. He will come visibly. According to Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn for him. So it is to be. Amen. Every eye will see him. Ponder that. Now, scientifically, I don't know how all well that's going to work and maybe it can it can media and all of that could come into play perhaps but every eye of those alive on the earth at that time will see him coming he comes personally number 2 he comes visibly number 3 he comes unmistakably he comes unmistakably Wasn't all that long ago that there was a news headline that came out that there was a sighting of a large Christmas tree type thing that was floating through the heavens. And what is that? There's unmistakable confusion about what people think they see floating in the skies nowadays. But when Jesus comes, it'll be unmistakable. Unmistakable. All the tribes of the earth, Jew and Gentile, will see the Son of Man. And if we need more clarity on that, just look Back to verse 27, just as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the son of man be. What does that mean? That means, you know, when you're driving and that lightning bolt is like right in front of you and you think, whoa, did you see that? So unmistakably will it be when Jesus returns again. Fourth, if you're taking notes the description of the coming forth he comes powerfully powerfully and this is what our verse says in verse 30 that they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power why does jesus say that he'll come with power here's why because he is capable of fulfilling his role in defeating all of god's enemies There is no one alive, there's no army alive, there's no king alive, there's no monarch alive that has that kind of power. But Jesus, Jesus, when he returns again, he comes with all mighty unstoppable power to defeat all of God's enemies. And fifth, if you're taking notes, fifth, he comes gloriously He comes gloriously, and a little bit earlier on, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus tells about his coming. In Matthew chapter 16, verse, this is right after he said, if you want to come after me, you need to take up your cross and follow me. Jesus said, for the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father with the angels and he will repay every man according to his deeds. He comes with glory. Here's the Greek word. Kingly splendor. This is like, this is like shocking majesty. Majesty. It's like all of the majesty of God, all the Shekinah of God that dwells in Jesus. His nature, his character, his power, his acts, all of the Godhood that is found bodily in Jesus will come shining with brilliance. Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 30, the Son of Man will come on the clouds of the sky with power. And it's not just with glory, it's with great glory. Great glory. Number six, the description of the coming. He comes, sixth, righteously. Righteously. I have long wanted to study this much more. I think it's one of the great doctrines of the Bible that our world doesn't understand the righteousness of God, that God upholds his law, that God is the one who judges lawbreakers, and he does so fairly, he does so justly, he does so exactly. And when Jesus comes righteously, I think it's most clearly presented in Revelation chapter 19. Verse 11, I saw the heavens opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that's crowns, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. I find it funny when commentators try to figure out what that name is, but nobody knows that name except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. It's not his cross. It's not the blood. It's the blood of his enemies when he destroys them. And the text tells us that his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. That's us. That's true believers. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of kings of lords he judges righteously righteously i think with that i have to give you number 7 as uncomfortable as this is it offends every part of our human faculty number 7 he comes angrily he comes angrily jesus came once born of a virgin the friend of sinners He will come back a second time, not the friend of sinners. He will come back a second time with anger and a flame of fire as it were, coming from his eyes. This is what Second Thessalonians 1 tells us, that Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our God. In Revelation 19.15, when Jesus returns, he treads the winepress of God's wrath. Jesus, he doesn't come back as a humble lamb. He doesn't come back as a suffering servant. He comes back as an angry but a just judge. He comes back angrily. Number eight, if you're taking notes, he comes back quickly. He comes back quickly. Revelation 22 tells us this on three different occasions. In Revelation 22, 7, Behold, Jesus said, I am coming quickly. Later on in verse 12, Jesus said, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. And then in the end of Revelation, the last couple of verses, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. You think What's well, taking you 2,000 years? Well, yeah, but it's not so much a chronological reference of how long it will be. It is when he comes, it is a swift, it is a speedy. It, when it happens, it will take place in a brief segment of time, meaning you better be ready. You better be ready. And that leads to number nine if you're taking notes the description of Christ's coming, he comes unexpectedly. You see, Matthew 24 tells us in verse 50 that the master of the house will come on a day when many slaves do not expect him and at an hour in which the slaves do not know. For every unbeliever, the second coming of Jesus Christ Will catch them off guard. Like two people in a field, and one is taken and one is left. Like two people in a bed, one is taken and one is left. That's not talking about the first part of the coming, the rapture. It's talking about the believers and unbelievers. Some are ready for his coming, but the unbelievers are not. What's the implication? Prepare, be ready. Just like it was in the days of Noah. Here's Noah, this seemingly crazy fool, building an ark in the desert. Could you imagine the mockery that he received? And yet, and yet as he was faithful to God, He was delivered, but so many were eating and drinking and marrying and giving and marriage and planting and buying, buying and selling. And yet the flood came and it took them unexpected. So it will be at the second coming, even though the tribulation will be bad, real bad. Believe it or not, life will still go on. And many will be unprepared. And then 10th, I think this is an important one, the description of Christ's coming. He comes certainly. It is a certain coming. I mean, it's actually going to happen. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3. That know this, in the last times there will be people that will mock. Where is the promise of his coming? And then 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us in verse 10, it will come. And many people might be mocking nowadays. Ha, huh, he's not going to come back. Hasn't happened yet. What do we have to worry about? But it will. It will. It is certain. Really quick, take your Bible. If you're in Matthew, just go back with me to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. And I want you to see this with me. This was written by David. Psalm 96 and... This is written as a call to worship the living God. It is a call for all the world, all the peoples of the world, to worship Yahweh. To ascribe praise and honor and glory to God that we would, verse 10 tells us, to say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Verse 11 tells us, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all it contains, let the fields exult and all that is in it, men and women, even fields and trees, both animate and inanimate creation, let everything rejoice. Why? Verse 13, for the Lord is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and he will judge the peoples in His faithfulness. These are descriptions of the coming of our Savior. If there's anything that we all ought to do at this point, it would say, Wow, what a God of power! What a God who makes promises in the Word. And then to examine our hearts and make sure that you are right with this God. To make sure that you are believing in him and that you've received him as your savior and your Lord and your king. For all who are unbelievers, this will be the most terrifying occasion they've ever known. But for those who are believers, more on this in a little bit. But for those who are believers, what hope we have in a great king who will come in regal splendor from heaven and he will make all wrongs right. We've seen the preparation for the coming. We've seen the description, 10 of them, for the coming. Now, very quickly, as we close, number three, if you're taking notes, jot down third, the application. Okay, so what? So what? Jesus is coming back. So what? The story is told of a, of a mom and her young girl. They went to church one Sunday and the, the sermon went forth of the coming of the Lord. And after church, as they were in the car, I think, boys and girls, you'll like this. This young girl said in the backseat, the young girl said, Mommy. Do you believe that Jesus is coming back? And the mommy said, yes, yes, I believe that. Then a few minutes go by and the young girl says, mommy, do you think he could come back today? Of course, the mommy says, well, yes, my dear, he may come back today. A few minutes go by and then the girl said again, like, mommy, could he come back in the next few minutes? And the mommy said, well, yes, yes, honey, he he may come back in the next few minutes. And the young girl said, well, then, mommy, you need to pull over the car and you need to do my hair real nice so that I will be ready to meet him when he comes. And I think there's a great teaching lesson there. Oh, that we were ready and thoughtful and expectant for his return, just like that little girl was thinking that Jesus could come back at any moment. I love the way theologian Wayne Grudem describes the the, the coming of Jesus and how it ought to affect our hearts And really some very heart-probing words. He says, do Christians really long for the return of Jesus? He said the more that Christians are caught up in the good things of this life and the more that we might neglect Christian fellowship for many other things that could take our attention and our time and and if we neglect our personal relationship with Christ, he said the less that we will long for the return of Jesus. But, But, he said, but on the other hand, many Christians who around the world may be experiencing persecution and great affliction Maybe some who may be elderly and some who are infirmed and those who are daily walking in a vibrant, vital, deep walk with Christ, they are the ones with an intense longing for his return. Why? He said to some extent, the degree that we actually long for the return of Christ is a barometer or a measure of our spiritual condition in that moment. Do we long for the return of Christ like we should? When those times come that we are distracted and, and we can get caught up in the things of this world and, and our minds can wander and our lives can get so busy and we can be distracted with good things. Let us remember the vital importance of looking upward for the soon return of Jesus. So what are the applications of this? We want to know that he's returning and we want our lives to be affected by the return of our Savior. Let me give you some practical exhortations that you can consider by way of application. Number one, abide in Christ. Abide in him like every day of your Christian life 1 John 2, 28, little children abide in Christ so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. I think Pastor John is saying in 1 John 2, hey, abide in Jesus and live a consistent life so that you're not ashamed when he comes with a guilty conscience. We want to have confidence and not be ashamed when he returns. Second, not only should we abide in Christ, I think a second application, we ought to watch for Christ. And in Jesus's own sermon here in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, he talks about some virgins, 10 to be exact. Five were foolish and five were wise. Some of them were watching and waiting, some were not. And those that were watching and those that were waiting were prepared and they were ready and they were taken to meet the bridegroom. But then there were others that were unprepared. They were not watchful. May it be for us that we would be like those wise, wise virgins looking for the coming of Jesus. And then with that, a third application, I think, is not only to be abiding in him, not only to be watching for him. Third, work for him. Work for him. We ought to be busy working. And then Jesus tells another story in Matthew 25 about talents, talents. What what has God given to you? What has God given to me? Some 10, some 5, some 1 or 2, according to your ability, God gives talents. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 25? That we ought to be diligent workmen for him. We ought to be diligent and vigilant and tireless servants for him. That we ought to be serving God. Not lazy, not squandering the talents, not burying it in the ground, but saying, Lord, how can I be used to the max for your glory? How can I use every day for your glory? This could be a New Year's, a New Year's sermon for the next year. How can we be busy? Not working in order to try to earn God's favor. That's not it at all. But because God has saved us all by his grace, that we would then be busy working and serving And laboring for him, for his glory, whatever he's given, wherever you are in life, whatever your season of life, whatever your possessions and your time and your opportunity and your place in life, you can use that well. So it does you no good to compare with others. But use it well for the glory of God. Fourth, I think another application for us is to stand, stand for him. Second Peter 3 just makes the promise that people are gonna mock. Pe- pe- people are gonna, they're gonna come against you. So what do we do as Christians? We know that Jesus will return, so guess what? We must speak up, we must speak forth, we must speak out, we must speak on and speak truth for him. Related to that is number five, an application. We ought to tell. The tell of Christ. I love Second Timothy chapter four, verse two, which says to preach the word. That's probably my life verse. But just before that, Second Timothy four one. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, and then he says, by his kingdom. So that's a lot of weight in what he's about to say. I charge you by all of the power that Jesus has to judge, all the power that Jesus has to come again, and all the authority that he has to reign on the earth. Here's what I want you to do. Preach. The word. Tell of him. From the pulpit, yes. In our families, yes. With our loved ones and acquaintances, yes. With strangers that you may come across, yes. To those whom you love and pray for and want to share the gospel with, be faithful to tell of Christ. Let me give you one more. I think this is a very important application, maybe timely for some who are here. Finally, number six, leave everything in his hands. And here's what I mean by that. You don't need to return evil for evil. You don't need to respond with insult when you're insulted. You don't need to revile when you've been reviled against. You don't need to return evil or insult when you've received it. As tempting as it is for payback. As tempting as it is to get revenge. As tempting as it is to say, well, they did that to me. Jude 14 says that Jesus will repay with all those who are ungodly. He will repay them With right judgment. Leave it in his hands. Jesus even said earlier in Matthew chapter 16. The son of man is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels. And he will then repay every man according to his deeds. So if Jesus is going to repay them. We don't need to. We take it we entrust our souls to a faithful creator who always does what is right. It was in the 1800s that there was a man by the name of Horatius Bonar. He was a good Scotsman. And the story goes that he would live daily and regularly thinking and reminding himself of the, of the soon return of Jesus. Jesus. Some have even said that in the morning when he would wake up, he would draw back the curtains of his window and he would say, perhaps today, Lord. But then at the end of the day, he would close the curtains and the story says maybe he would say, maybe tonight, Lord. Maybe we would open the curtains and close the curtains or the blinds or the windows or whatever it is in your life. Maybe today. Maybe today, oh, that God in his mercy would grant us to be watchful in looking for his soon return. I want to close with you by reading from Second Thessalonians 1. Go there if you would, and then we'll be done. Second Thessalonians 1. Now, Paul is writing a book. It's a little letter, three chapters, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And he's writing to the Thessalonian believers and he's going to give them encouragement because they're being mistreated, they're suffering, they're going through great hardship and a lot of unjust treatment. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren. It is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven, that's the second coming with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled. Do you see that there? To be marveled at to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you is believed. To this end, we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness, and that he will work uh, uh, in the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about the second coming of Jesus, let's marvel. Let's marvel at the one who is all together powerful and glorious. And let's worship and praise him, for he deserves all of our honor. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given clarity in your word, not only about the first coming, but about the second coming. Thank you that there is hope and such relief for us who are believers in the Lord Jesus. Oh, we pray that you would come soon, O Lord, for those who do not know Jesus. We pray that this very day they would open their hearts and receive the Lord Jesus in saving faith, that they would come to Christ and believe upon him and have salvation and deliverance granted to them by your amazing grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.